From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. You want to be very artistic about it. You want to leave a little knob of dough at the end. So it's got this fat belly in the middle, and then these skinny arms that taper out to the end, and then a little bit of a knob right there. On today's show, we learn how to make German-style soft pretzels from Eric Schedler of Muddy Fork Bakery. We also revisit a conversation with IU food researcher Angela Babb. She breaks down food policy at the federal level to help us make sense of some of the food systems we've been re-examining this year in light of the global pandemic. And Harvest Public Media checks in with farmers growing hemp for the first time in 2020. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. we spent some time on the show exploring the Farm Bill just as it was about to be reauthorized. As we approach the start of a new administration, I thought it might be a good time to revisit the Farm Bill discussion we had with IU scholar Angela Babb. She does a good job of explaining some of the federal policies that guide our food system, which we have been examining this past year with new eyes. The coronavirus crisis has revealed inequities and problems of resiliency in our food system, from long supply chains to emergency food assistance. The Farm Bill deals with agriculture and also with SNAP benefits. SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and used to be called food stamps. Angela Babb is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Ostrom Workshop on Political Theory and Policy Analysis here at Indiana University. She has studied the Farm Bill extensively, with a particular interest in SNAP. Angela Babb spoke with producer Alex Chambers first to help him understand some of the history of the Farm Bill and how it ends up including so many things that don't seem to have much to do with farming. Alex started by asking Angela to explain the origins of the Farm Bill. 
It started in the 1930s as a way to help farmers after the Dust Bowl in a very volatile market already, as agriculture is. Uh, after the Dust Bowl, farmers really needed some financial supports. President FDR signed the first Agricultural Adjustment Act in 1933, which basically put some production controls down to help regulate commodity prices and provided grain reserves for farmers to set aside product when there was too much on the market that was driving down prices. So the Agricultural Adjustment Act, now we consider it the Farm Bill, was put in place to help farmers, particularly after the Dust Bowl, secure their incomes. Uh, but it's changed very much. Yeah, it has changed a lot since then. Now the Farm Bill directs about $95 billion in annual federal spending. 80% of that is for nutrition assistance programs, most of that being SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, and then the rest going into the emergency food assistance program, which is the funding for food banks. So how did that happen? Well, um, it's got a long, uh, complicated history. So the first food stamp program was in 1939. It was just three years after the farm bill, the first farm bill. And this first food stamp plan looked very different than what we have now. It was a system in which you buy stamps and then receive extra stamps only for buying surplus commodities. So a person would go to um, a Department of Ag op office, buy a dollar in orange stamps that can be used on anything, any kind of food, and then would receive 50 cents in blue stamps that have to be used on surplus commodities. Those at the time were butter, eggs, pork lard, dry beans, wheat flour, cornmeal, things like that. What do you mean by sur surplus commodities? So things that were being produced in such great degree that the price was being driven down by the great amount being on the market. Okay. So that sounds like it was really helping the farmers out. It really was. And actually, um, farmers were actually destroying their surpluses until uh, the discourse around the program changed from one of hunger relief to one of surplus distribution. There was actually a lot of um, contestation around that first plan um, it was viewed as a shameful threat to the free market. It was viewed as un-American, kind of a charitable handout to folks that needed to be pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. And this was in the 30s? Yes. Like the height of the Depression? Yes, the in 1939. Yeah. It was, it was controversial from the very beginning. Some of the Protestant ethic and kind of... American ideologies around what people deserve and handouts versus gaming the system. That's been there from the very beginning. Even at a time when, like you said, like right after the Great Depression, there's still this stigma around poor households getting any assistance from the state. So legislators started framing it differently in order to have farmers be more receptive to the program and to stop, you know, destroying their surplus instead of 
kind of funneling in, into these networks for needy families. And unfortunately, that first program ended about 1943 because with the war, there weren't really enough farmers and enough surplus at that point. So the program ended and didn't start up again until the 60s. And what brought the program back? Well, there was still a need. Slowly, people were starting to realize that folks kind of at the margins were still experiencing hunger. And there was a call, especially from legislators representing urban areas, realizing that there was extreme poverty that needed to be addressed. So again, the issue was between representatives from urban versus representatives from rural areas. And the compromise came down to, you know, the rural communities being able to distribute their surplus and the urban communities being able to access food. Okay, so um, that makes sense. But I'm curious about what the debate was that led to that compromise. I know that one thing that was really important, and this was after the pilot program, it was 1969 when CBS put out a documentary, it was about an hour long, it was called Hunger in America, and they visited four different communities across the U.S. to show that poverty and hunger was prevalent um, among Native American communities, among Mexican American communities, the rural white populations um, on the East Coast, that poverty was hidden. And that CBS documentary really kind of pulled the wool off of people's eyes. And that's after that, we see the food stamp program of 1977, which is the model that we have today. There's no purchase requirement. Uh, there's no restriction to surplus commodities. Basically, if you are within the poverty threshold, you are eligible for food stamps. In 1984, we saw the first electronic benefits transfer cards, the EBT cards that everyone uses today on food stamps. Um, they've been used in all states now as of 2004. Oh, and I forgot to say that actually before 1977, the pilot programs of the 40s and the 60s weren't in all states. Ah, they okay. were, and they had very different rules from state to state um, on how many you had to buy. Sometimes you had to buy a whole month's supply of orange stamps to get the blue stamps. And that was keeping people from being able to afford them at all. Um, so, and that's another thing exposed by the CBS documentary that people couldn't afford the food stamp program in the first place. So they had to eliminate the purchase requirement. So it was set up to help partly the farmers. Um, does it do that? Originally, it did really help the small, medium-scale family farmers. And it's, today, still, we see a lot of farmers dependent on the commodity programs out of the farm bill. But the greatest percentage of financial support out of the farm bill is going towards the large-scale commodity producers, those growing corn and soy, wheat and cotton, and now peanuts. 
And we see a lot less of that funding going towards the small-scale farmers, especially those in specialty crops. Like vegetables? Fruits and vegetables, legumes. (laughs) Wow. Why are those specialty crops? You know, that's a great question. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, they they should be mainstream crops. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of it has to do with the nature of the crops themselves. So corn and soy were very easily mechanized and industrialized agriculturally. And there's also the political side of it, the support, the lobbying support that we see from big agribusiness that is has a solid interest in subsidizing corn and effectively subsidizing meat and dairy production. By way of the corn. Mm-hmm. And there's a trickle down in the sense um, that in calling the vegetables and fruits specialty crops, that makes them less available to people because they're more expensive. They're not subsidized as thoroughly, right? Yeah, they just recently in the last farm bill became eligible for the crop insurance programs. So that was a major benefit to those specialty crop growers. But they still aren't receiving the subsidies uh, which are part of the commodity programs, which are separate from the crop insurance programs. So with the commodity programs, basically a farmer can say, I'm going to grow this many acres of corn, and they receive uh, the money to grow that corn. They're guaranteed um, a certain price. That discussion helped me to understand how the Farm Bill ended up including the Nutrition Assistance Program and how it is that corn, soybeans, and wheat became the largest commodity crops. They talked about how it got started, but I'm curious about why it continues to be this way. Why are the food assistance programs still included in the Farm Bill? Later on in the show, we have part two of Alex's conversation with Angela Babb, about some of the problems that come up due to the glaring conflict of interest, with the USDA being responsible for marketing and distributing surplus commodities, and also being the agency that sets nutrition guidelines for government food assistance programs. Stay tuned for that, plus the soft pretzel recipe we promised from Muddy Fork. That's all just ahead. recent farm bill legalized hemp production nationwide, but left individual states in charge of the oversight. 
As the crop continues to roll out across the Midwest, some states are seeing more success than others. But as Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, farmers generally remain optimistic about hemp's future. 0.3% is hemp's magic number. That's the level of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, that distinguishes hemp from marijuana, and one of the few things the federal government regulates. Jay Kada didn't quite make the cut. We were the first crop in Iowa to test hot. Um, we, we were more than twice the limit uh, of THC in our plants. He and his colleagues who run 4M farms in southeast Iowa had no other choice. We had to mow everything down and burn it. Kada says growing hemp is hard work. Unlike row crops, most things have to be done by hand. I have a newborn baby, so I spent all summer, instead of playing with her, I was weeding a field. You know, we were filthy and we were dirty and we were sweaty and it sucked and it was hot and it was miserable. And after all that, she's like, that's cool. I'm just going to light that on fire. Kada isn't the only one. About 13 percent of Iowa's hemp crop came in above the legal THC threshold. In Missouri, it was about 9 percent. That's largely because for many states like Iowa and Missouri, this was the first year of legal hemp production. Anytime you start something up, I think you have some highs and some lows and some things you didn't see coming at you. Robin Prusner oversees the hemp program for Iowa's Department of Agriculture. She says there have been a whole host of challenges for farmers this year, including the amount of sheer manual labor. That's like, you know, having a tomato garden that's five acres or however big compared to just your little kind of more typical garden in the backyard. Producers across the Midwest struggled with other issues in the field this year, like pests and weeds. But it didn't get much easier once the hemp was harvested. Most hemp grown in the Midwest is for CBD, or cannabidiol, which is the non-psychoactive ingredient found in the cannabis plant. Extracting the CBD requires a processor. But because the industry is still so new, there's a severe lack of licensed processors across the region. We have now licensed 364 hemp processors um, for what is, at this exact moment of time, an exact 800 uh, licensed hemp growers. David Lakeman manages the Division of Cannabis Regulation at the Illinois Department of Ag. He says the gap between growers and processors has narrowed slightly this year. But some more experienced farmers have figured out a workaround by acquiring their own processing licenses. Farmers like Andy Houston, who's been growing hemp in Illinois for three years now. The CBD that's in our products came off of our farm. We know exactly where it's been. We know exactly what, how it was raised. Because he has dual licenses, Houston can grow the hemp, extract the oil himself, and then sell different infused products on site. It's a model that's worked well for him. And along with a great growing season this year, Houston says he's optimistic about hemp's future in the state. Oh, the hemp's going to be around. I mean, it's just, it works too good not to be around. Not only does the product work well in terms of relieving aches and pains, Houston says hemp also loves the Midwestern climate. Not to mention, the CBD market continues to grow. David Lakeman at Illinois' Department of Ag says, look out, corn and soybeans. I think that within the next five to ten years, hemp will be, in terms of the dollar amounts, one of the top three uh, agricultural exports of the state of Illinois. He says hemp's medical and industrial potential, plus the ingenuity of growers, means the crop's future is bright. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. 
Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Earlier in the show, we shared a conversation from 2018 with Angela Bapp. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis here at Indiana University. She has studied the food assistance portion of the Farm Bill extensively, with a particular focus on the Thrifty Food Plan. Before this, I hadn't heard of the Thrifty Food Plan. It's basically food budgeting. The USDA looks at the amount of money that a household would need in order to buy food. That's how they allocate how much money goes to SNAP recipients. We'll start the second half of this conversation with a review of what the USDA is, and then talk about a conflict of interest built into what they do. The USDA is the largest, most diverse department out of the U.S. government. They are overseeing um, marketing support for farmers. They're overseeing rural development and nutrition assistance and forestry. The clearest conflict of interest is between the marketing of agricultural goods and the development of nutritional guidelines and nutritional assistance programs. Um, Historically, those agricultural goods that we're producing are corn and soy and wheat. At the same time, the nutritional guidelines are directing people to eat the specialty crops, the fruits and vegetables and legumes that aren't supported financially by the farm bill. So it's pretty ironic um, telling folks in poverty to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables when those are more expensive than um, the cheap grains that have been processed into millions of different products at this point. Right, which are in the boxes in the middle of the supermarket and are Mm -hmm. more affordable and yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the suggestion is to get the food stamp program or the nutrition assistance programs and the dietary guidelines out of the USDA and um, hand them over to the Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah. So that's that's the call. But the USDA has been reluctant to get rid of their part in the nutritional assistance programs because those have always been an outlet for the surplus commodities that they're supporting through the farm bill. The lobbies or the the parts of the USDA that have an interest in supporting corn, soy, wheat, these large-scale commodity crops that are being subsidized, want to hold on to SNAP. 
because it's um, a way to move those commodities within the U.S. Is that right? Yeah, SNAP and TFAP. So, and what is TFAP? So the Emergency Food Assistance Program is the direct line to the food banks and the commodity boxes that are then uh, distributed to senior citizens and uh, to Native American reservations. And under Trump's new proposal to just about every household on SNAP. Um, so that's, um, it seems um, less clear now that uh, the food stamp program has changed so that people presumably have a choice on how to use their food stamps. But economically, when they get to the store, um, that choice is really limited because of the relative price of foods at the store. It's still those cheap processed corn and soy products that are the most affordable and most accessible to folks on SNAP. What do you think would be a good next step in terms of reorganizing all of this? <laughs> How would you fix the world, Angela Babb? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Um, I'll do my best. Um, I mean, it, to be totally real with you, I would say we have to get out of the frame of food security and think about food sovereignty and the ability of farmers to have a real choice in what they're growing, to have foods valued not in their market price, but in you know, their nutritional and their cultural values. And to have folks um, struggling in poverty, to have a more dynamic safety net program. Um, I personally study the Thrifty Food Plan, which is this model diet that underlies the SNAP allotment. So it determines how much people get in food stamps. And the calculation needs to be changed. It's not enough money for people to afford a really nutritious, culturally appropriate diet. So mm. we, need, we need the safety net there. Uh, we need to you know, have SNAP or something similar in place, but the program itself needs to change quite a bit. And I would be a proponent, too, of, of shifting... Uh, the regulation of it over to the Health and Human Services Department. I think it's really important to recognize that there's plenty of food. There's The issue is not the availability of food. We currently produce more than twice what we need in this country. Um, but what we're producing is not ecologically sustainable. It's not culturally appropriate for most Americans. And the way that we've prioritized cheap food and convenient food and driven down the value of food um, has terrible implications for folks in poverty expected to survive on that cheap processed food, um, to, to survive on the surplus or basically the waste of 
large agribusiness. Can you say a little bit more about the cultural appropriateness or lack thereof? Yeah, so one thing I find really alarming is in the 30 food plan that determines the, the budget that these you know SNAP households have to live on, um, there is an assumption that households are consuming over three cups of liquid milk every day. The, the reason for that is because of the way we've subsidized corn, we've effectively subsidized dairy. And now milk has become uh, the cheapest form of protein, and it's been fortified with some vitamins. So there are roughly one in four Americans that are lactose intolerant. Globally, 60% of the population is lactose intolerant. It is not typical for folks to be able to digest lactose after the age of two. Um, But the dairy lobby has been very effective in maintaining those subsidies and um, maintaining uh, their interests within the farm bill. And... We expect folks, even the educational part of SNAP, the SNAP program, trains folks that are lactose intolerant to consume more and more milk to try to build a tolerance rather than respect the fact that people are lactose intolerant. They don't need or want to be drinking that surplus dairy. It's and and frankly, it's it's racist too, when you think of when you realize how um, people of color are disproportionately more likely to be lactose intolerant. Something like close to 100 percent of Native Americans, 90 percent of African Americans, 80 some percent of Asian Americans. Uh, like, I think, 60% of Hispanic Americans. Um, so it's it's really not culturally appropriate to be expecting these folks to, one, live on that much dairy when their bodies don't need it or want it, um, but also to survive on those processed foods, high in sugar and salt that are leading to issues of, you know, diabetes and um, cardiovascular disease and uh, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That's really fascinating to hear about the the dairy and the ways that like the actual diet itself that gets laid out um, is itself has racial uh, implications. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. itself racist, I should say. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's it's institutionalized yeah. racism. Mm-hmm. Yet another form of it. Before this conversation, I was unaware of the fact that many people of color are lactose intolerant. And I didn't realize that milk was one of the subsidized commodity crops. I usually think of corn and soybeans, but not milk. This interview made me want to learn more about the Thrifty Food Plan and how it's determined. We ended up inviting Angela Babb back on the show to go into more detail. 
You can find that conversation on our website. It's a rather riveting tale involving attempted government secrecy and Angela Babb filing a Freedom of Information Act request. Check it out at eartheats.org. Oh, and you can hear Alex Chambers' latest project, The Age of Humans. Find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young. Freshly made soft pretzels are a treat we don't often think of making at home. And here in Bloomington, Indiana, you don't need to. You can get your weekly pretzel fix from Muddy Fork Bakery. These days you can order online or head over to the Winter Market at Switchyard Park Pavilion on Saturdays. Muddy Fork's Eric Shedler learned pretzel making informally at a village bakery in southern Germany when he was 20 years old. And he's willing to pass his secrets on to you, dear listeners of Earth Eats. So today we are going to make German-style soft pretzels. And by German-style, I mean dipped in real lye solution. It's not too, not too strong. The typical way to do it is to, dip, to put it in a 4% lye solution. So it's actually a lot less caustic than what you would make if you're making soap. You can stick your fingers in it and they don't burn off immediately. <laughs> Although I do suggest wearing gloves, especially if you have any cuts at all on your fingers. They will burn immediately in the lye. So what is lye? Sodium hydroxide. That um, A lye solution is very basic and it reacts uh, with the dough to change the chemistry in the outer layer of the dough. And then when it bakes, the lye dissipates, but it causes a much higher amount of caramelization reactions uh, in the surface of the dough as it bakes. And that gives it that characteristic deep brown, reddish brown color and a certain flavor that you just associate with pretzels. So if you don't happen to have lye sitting around in your pantry, you can use like a baking soda solution. Is that what most people do? You can do that. I've done it. Um, people often recommend a boiling baking soda solution, although I will warn you that it's hard to keep a pretzel in its shape when you put it in boiling water. And that may work better for making rolls than actual pretzels. But if you want to take the plunge or if you already make soap or want to make some soap, you can buy a little bottle of lye beads and make yourself a little solution. Okay. Pretzel dough is almost a straight bread dough with the one addition of a little bit of fat in the dough. Uh, most people use butter. Um, you can use lard. Actually, the pretzels that we sell in our bakery, we use lard because we <clears throat> wanted to try to use as many local ingredients as we could. And you can buy lard locally and you can't if you're a bakery you can't legally buy butter locally because all the butter that's available is raw milk butter all right uh, so to make the pretzels we're going to measure out the water and mix in the yeast and let the yeast dissolve this recipe is going to make uh, six four ounce pretzels so we need 255 grams of water and we need two grams of yeast and 
one gram of yeast is about equal to a quarter teaspoon. So we're gonna use half a teaspoon of yeast. It's hard to measure a gram or two, even on a really good scale. So having a couple of conversions is nice. And uh, speeding it along with the whisk a little bit. My next ingredient is the butter, and I don't want the fat to hit the undissolved yeast, because then the yeast could just get frozen in the butter and not hydrate. All right, here's our melted butter. We measured out 35 grams of butter earlier and stuck it in the oven to melt. My favorite butter for baking is Kerrygold butter, which is the butter we use for our croissants. Then we just need to add the flour and the salt. And when I have oil or butter or any kind of floating fat in the dough, I try to uh, move the water as I'm adding the flour so that I don't get flour to only absorb fat. Okay. I want to get the flour into the water. The best way to do this is to take a different bowl and measure the flour out. Then we can just dump it in quickly and stir it as we dump in the flour. So we want 425 grams of flour. This is an all-purpose flour. You don't want, for pretzels, to use a flour that has too much protein or too high of a gluten content in it because it will make the pretzels hard to stretch. We want eight and a half grams of salt, which is going to be slightly less than two teaspoons. So we have our wet measured out, we have our dry measured out, and with the spoon I'm just gonna stir this butter water mixture while I add the flour. Pretzel dough is also a pretty stiff dough, and that's kind of important because you have to be able to work with it to roll it out, shape it into pretzels. And I believe the reason for the fat in it, and you wouldn't want to do this with oil, you'd want to use butter, lard, or shortening, uh, is that after you form the pretzels, you chill them, and that makes them firmer and easier to handle while you're dipping them in the lye and getting them into the oven without destroying them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, I've done what I could with the spoon, so I'm gonna use my hands a little bit to knead this dough until it gets more smooth and evenly incorporated. And I'm doing that by tugging at the dough at the edge of the bowl and pressing it down into the middle, giving that bowl about a quarter turn and repeating that motion over and over again. Just in the bowl, the mess is all contained in the bowl, except for your fingers. minutes until everything is evenly incorporated. Okay, I'm about done mixing here. The dough is looking smoother, although it's still kind of raggedy at this point. It gets really smooth when it sits and rests, but um, this pretzel dough is, is, like I said, it's pretty stiff, so everything comes clean off the bowl when you're mixing it up. And there we have it. I'm going to set it to rest. The dough's going to rest covered at room temperature for a few hours, but you'll still need to tend to it. Oh, you know what that means it's time to do? Time to fold our dough. If you have a kitchen timer going, then you won't forget every 30 to 60 minutes to fold your dough. And this pretzel dough usually should get three folds, not more than that, or you'll make it too strong and it'll be harder to roll out your pretzels. So you should notice the dough getting smoother every time you do a fold. 
and we're doing that same motion we use for mixing where I'm pulling the dough from the outside edge into the middle and I'm going to go once around the bowl and then cover it back up, set my timer. For pretzels, I'll set the timer for 60 minutes. After three hours, it's had three folds and it's ready to cut up into pretzels. So, just to recap, we mix the dough, knead it until it's smooth, let it rest for three hours, folding it once each hour. Then the dough is ready to be divided and shaped into pretzels. Our pretzel dough has been fermenting away for a few hours and we're turning that dough out onto the table and we're gonna cut our dough into four ounce pieces for pretzels. You want to flatten your dough. It'll make it easier to start to roll out that big long pretzel. So I've got a little bit of flour, rolling pin, and another tool which is called a bench knife or a bench scraper or a dough knife. It's a little rectangle of metal with a handle on it. Okay, just enough flour to make it not stick, but not too much. And you can see how nice and smooth the dough gets. So I'm measuring them to 120 grams, just over four ounces each. You want to roll your pretzel like three feet long. So the dough doesn't usually want to stretch that far all at once. So we're going to roll it in two phases. We're going to roll up that rectangle into a strand and I easily get it around 16, 18 inches long. So the motion that I'm doing is I'm taking each piece, which should be cut sort of rectangular, pressing it down flat. And sometimes I even tug at the edges a little bit to make it longer, a more elongated rectangle. Then I roll it up from the long edge and pinch it down. And then I roll with my hands. Uh, when you're rolling a strand, you're pressing down using combination of pressing weight down on the table against the strand and also pulling the dough outward. So you're constantly putting your hands back in the middle and rolling back and forth, moving your hands towards the edge, back to the middle again, pushing towards the edge. And you don't want to push the dough farther than it wants to go. Just let it rest. You can either you can let them sit on your table on a and then cover them with plastic while they're resting. And these pretzels are going to need about 10 to 20 minutes to rest before we can roll them a second time. You might be tempted to rush it at this point. Skip the resting and just get on with shaping the pretzels. Don't. You'll just get frustrated. The dough rope that you're rolling out simply won't stretch to the length that you need it to unless it has time to relax. So walk away. Go clean up the kitchen. Or better yet, relax yourself. Go read a book in a hammock. For 20 minutes. Then you can finish shaping the pretzels, like Eric is about to do. And now I'm going to take them back off of the tray and try to stretch them out to three, three and a half feet long and twist them. Just gonna roll them. And I'm gonna avoid thinning out the, the middle too much because that's the belly of the pretzel. If you wanna be very artistic about it, you wanna leave a little knob of dough at the end. So it's got this fat belly in the middle and then these skinny arms that taper out to the end and then a little bit of a knob right there. And then the way the Germans do it is they pick up the ends and they toss the pretzel and let it fall back down and towards the ends of the arms you've made, or the, the part where the arms cross, and, and 
what the twist needs to be where they cross once and then cross back so that each arm goes back to its side of the dough. And then you can sort of stick it up there on the ends. And to rest the pretzels, I suggest a board or a sheet pan with a cloth over the top of it so that the pretzels don't get stuck. And we'll put that in the fridge to let them firm up because these are they're definitely floppy. And with that butter in the dough, they'll get nice and firm and hard when they go in the fridge. That's right. He's letting them rest again. This time, get your lye bath ready and set up your workstation for dipping the set pretzels and laying them out on a baking sheet. So we are going to dip the pretzels in lye, put salt on them and score them with a razor blade. And as with deep frying, you want to have everything ready when you're about to handle lye. So you're definitely wearing gloves for the food grade. If I had cuts on my hands, I would put two pairs of gloves because sometimes the gloves rip and it, it, will burn, it will burn right away if you have a cut. The way we do it on a large scale is we have a, a rectangular tub and a couple of screens and we rest the pretzels on one screen and then weigh them down with another screen to get them to stay submerged. At home, I would just I would mix as little lye as you need so you don't have to waste it and then just hold it down with your gloved hand under the liquid for about five seconds. Pretzels that have been dipped in lye, you have to use a silicone-based parchment. You can't use any other material. Well, in particular, you can't use something called Quillon because it will bond to the pretzels, which, which is what cheaper parchments usually are made of. So I've dipped the pretzels. I have a little minute to reshape them on the tray before they get kind of stuck. Pretzel salt, which is some kind of salt that's been like, uh, it's not coarse pieces because those are hard. It's some kind of thing that's been like pressed together into little little balls of salt. And I'm gonna sprinkle the pretzels, especially the bellies. And we're going to score them with a sharp blade right along the belly. And that's going to give the pretzel a place to expand that will look pretty. Typically, we would be baking pretzels after the bread's finish. And so the oven will be in the 500s. And they will take about 8 to 12 minutes at that kind of temperature. If you recall from when Muddy Fork has been on Earth Eats before, They do all the baking in a large-scale wood-fired brick oven that they heat to very high temperatures each week to bake their bread, croissants, and other goodies. As the oven cools, they bake items that require lower temperatures, like pretzels. In your home oven, 500 might be the highest it goes. If so, just start checking them at around eight minutes. You want them to be fully browned and caramelized on the outside and not doughy in the center. Once they're out of the oven, let them rest again, ever so briefly, to cool slightly. But you know, soft pretzels are best hot and fresh from the oven. A a German baker would tell you that a pretzel should be fat in the belly, which is also where we scored it, and soft in that part, with skinny arms and crunchy in the arms, so you get a range of textures in your pretzel. And uh, you can eat it hot, like we're going to, Another way that they're eaten in southern Germany is you can slice open the pretzel from uh, the shoulder, from one shoulder to the other shoulder, and put cold butter on it. 
It's called a, it's called a buta brezel. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's try it. Do I try the fat part or the skinny part? And you can taste that signature pretzel flavor in the skin. Yep. Which is that reaction of the dough with the lye. Yeah, it has such a crisp but thin outside. Yes, that's right. That's another feature of the lye. And then very soft in the middle. And the whole thing is just rich with flavor. It's almost buttery. Yes, and it has a little butter in it. That's true. Just the right amount of salt as well. <laughs> <laughs> we like to make um, some of our plain croissants into pretzel croissants by dipping them in lye and salting them. And the, that savory flavor of the, the pretzel flavor and the salt really goes well with the butter. It makes it taste extra buttery. Yeah. Oh, it's very nice. Thank you. I know you're craving pretzels now. Well, I know I am. You'll find Muddy Fork Bakery at the Winter Farmer's Market here in Bloomington. You can place an online order or you can follow Eric Shedler's detailed instructions for making your own. You'll find the recipe at eartheats.org, and you can review these audio instructions anytime through the podcast service of your choice or by going to the website and finding this episode, eartheats.org. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Alex Chambers, Angela Babb, and Eric Shedler. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.